Please stand with me for the reading of God's word. Exodus 33, 12 through 23. Moses in the glory of God. Moses said to the Lord, you have been telling me, lead these people, but you have not let me know whom you will send with me. You have said, I know you by name and you have found favor with me. If you are pleased with me, teach me your ways so I may know you and continue to find favor with you. Remember that this nation is your people. The Lord replied, my presence will go with you and I will give you rest. Then Moses said to him, if your presence does not go with us, do not send us up from here. How will anyone know that you are pleased with me and with your people unless you go with us? What, what else will distinguish me and your people from all the other people on the face of the earth? And the Lord said to Moses, I will do the very thing you have asked because I am pleased with you and I know you by name. Then Moses said, now show me your glory. And the Lord said, I will cause all my goodness to pass in front of you and I will pro proclaim my name, the Lord. In your presence, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. But he said, you cannot see my face, for no one can see me and live. Then the Lord said, there is a place near, near me where you may stand on a rock. When my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft in the rock and cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will remove my hand and you will see my back, but my face must not be seen. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Good morning. A uh, little order of business. So next week is um, Palm Sunday, and our kids, the children, are going to sing some songs for us next week, which is an annual favorite, right? It's been a couple years. So they're going to rehearse today right after the service, which means we're going to kick you out of the sanctuary right after the service. And you, yeah, I know, that's a really mean way to start the service. We're going to have you go, go out on the patio. You can hang out there. They'll, they'll come and rehearse, and the parents, you can come back and get them. I'll remind you at the end of the service, but just wanted you to know, um, right at the end, we'll just kind of go and do our thing out in the patio, and they'll come and rehearse, and then next week we'll get to enjoy uh, their worship uh, up here for us. It'll be fun. All right, so... Um, I've been saying that, um, you know, a couple times that we keep coming, like, to the most fundamental passages, right, Nexus? And I lied. Now I'm telling the truth. <laughs> Today is the most important passage that we're going to come to in this series, uh, in the life of Moses. And I actually mean that. I'm kind of being funny. But uh, I can't think of a more foundational moment than this. And what God reveals to Moses, uh, we haven't actually read all of the passage yet. Um, is as foundational as it comes. And, and this passage and what God does here will echo down through Scripture uh, and ultimately be revealed in the person of Jesus Christ. And so I, I, I've really been excited about this week in particular, and I hope that, um, that we see God's glory today, as, as Moses did. That's, that's the goal. And just to remind you of the context, if you haven't been here for a couple of weeks, so the context of this passage is actually a very devastating event that took place that we looked at last week, which is the event of the golden calf and the worship of the golden calf. So what was going on? You had Moses and God on the top of Mount Sinai, and they're forming this beautiful covenant relationship that God will have with the people. Uh, it's going to be a, a relationship of intimacy uh, and commitment and covenant, kind of like a marriage 
marriage covenant. That's what's happening on the top of the mountain. Meanwhile, at the very same time, at the bottom of the mountain, the people are freaking out, and they've gone back to the gods of Egypt. They've made a, a golden calf, and they're worshiping it and saying, these are your gods who let you out of Egypt, okay? So this is months into this relationship with God. Like, the ceremony is happening, and even in that moment, they are cheating on God. I said last week, it'd be like if you got married, and one of the partners cheated on their spouse on the honeymoon itself, Okay. You're left looking at this relationship going, I don't know if there's much to salvage here. Like this, this feels like there's a fatal flaw from the beginning in this relationship. And that's what we are left feeling after chapter 32 and wondering, how is this going to work? So last week we saw there were a bunch of consequences to the people's actions in 32. And then look at the, the beginning of chapter 33, verse 2. God is considering what to do. How is this going to work? And here's, his, here's what he says. I'll send an angel before you into the promised land, okay? So verse 3, go up to the land flowing with milk and honey, but I will not go with you because you are a, stick neck, stick, a stiff-necked people and I might destroy you on the way, okay? This isn't working, okay? I'm a holy God. You guys are an unfaithful people and... Um, Maybe it would be best if I stay here at Sinai and I'll send an angel with you into the promised land. And we're left in suspense, wondering what's going to happen today. We'll get the resolution to that suspense. But what we're dealing with is this fundamental tension, okay, in a relationship between a God who is holy and perfect and awesome and glorious and a people who are sinful and broken and messy. And not only that, but like chronically so. Okay, that, that word, that word in, in verse... Um, that I had a hard time pronouncing, stiff-necked, that's a really important description. You are a stiff-necked people. If you go to chapter 34, um, verse 9, Moses cries out to the Lord, Lord, if you found favor, in, if I found favor in your eyes, then let the, the Lord go with us, although this is a stiff-necked people, okay? They're stiff-necked. That's a description of a donkey or a horse, right? You're riding this thing, and you have the reins, and you're trying to turn it where it ought to go, and it's stubborn. And what we're learning about these people is they, they're stubborn. They will be chronically unfaithful to God, okay? This is what we need to feel. The golden calf will not be an anomaly for these people. This is not like a, a blip on an otherwise perfect record that they're going to have. Things like the golden calf are going to happen again because this is who they are. And yet God is who he is. And so what's being proposed is this. Maybe we just need to keep a safe distance from one another, right? I'll stay here and you guys go. I'll send an angel because this, this isn't, how is this going to work? And it's really interesting. If you look at verse 7 in chapter 33, it talks about the tent of meeting where Moses would meet with God, but the description of that tent is very interesting. Look at verse 7. Now Moses used to take a tent and pitch it where? outside the camp, some distance away, calling it the tent of meeting, okay? God had proposed a tabernacle, a tent that would be right in the middle, right encamped right in the middle of the people, but now we've got this tent of meeting that has to be pretty far away. There needs to be some distance between us and God, or between God and us, okay? That's the tension of this passage. And before we see the resolution, let me just suggest that tension is not just academic, or historical, okay? We, we feel that tension all the time in our relationship with God, okay? And I want you to think about how your relationship with God works today. And it's something like this, probably. I know that God, 
I know some things about him. I know he's perfect. I know he's holy. I know he's awesome. And, I, and if I'm honest, I know things about myself, okay, that I am chronically unfaithful, that I make resolutions to God, right? I, I, I sin, I make a resolution, and then I do it again and again and again. And if I'm honest, I probably will kind of always be like this. And so, so what do I do with that? How do I relate to God? And, and our solution is sometimes, I think, maybe it's best if we just kind of keep our distance from one another. Like, we're in relationship, but like full-fledged intimacy, I, I assume that's for, that's got to be some other Christian who's not me, okay? And so we're in relationship, but there has to be some distance because surely when God sees me and he sees the chronic stiff-neckedness of my life, surely he experiences things like at least disappointment or anger or frustration. And that's kind of how I picture him. When I think of God looking down at me, he's kind of just vaguely disappointed. And it's never fun to move towards disappointment. And so maybe the best solution is we, we kind of we keep a sort of distance, but we, we stay in connection somehow, okay? That is something we all have to, to think through. That's a tension that we all feel. And what we're going to see in this passage is Moses, who feels that tension, and rather than pulling away, he chooses to lean in, and he, he just presses into that tension. He goes for broke with God, and he's rewarded with this beautiful picture of the heart of God and the glory of God. I was thinking of the passage in Hebrews where it says, let us approach the throne of grace with confidence. And that's what Moses does here. He goes in, he goes boldly into that tension, demanding and asking an answer from God. How do we resolve this God? And he, he gets to see the glory of God. And so that's our goal today is to, to lean in with Moses and hopefully to behold the glory of our God with Moses, Okay best passage that we're going to get at this time, I promise. All right, so let's just walk through some of this. Uh, there's two requests that, that I see, a couple more than that, but I'm going to point out two that, that Moses makes. Love these requests. Uh, look at verse 12, where Kelsey started reading, just chapter 33, verse 12. Here's the first request. Uh, Moses said to the Lord, you've been telling me lead these people, but you've not let me know whom you will send with me, right? You said some angel's going to send, you know, go with us, but who's that going to be? Go down to verse 15. Then Moses said to him, if your presence, Lord, doesn't go with us, don't send us up from, he- from here. How will anyone know that you're pleased with me and with your people unless you yourself go with us? What else will distinguish me and your people from all the other people on the face of the earth? And I love the, the desperation in Moses' request, right? Like, God, we need you. A substitute won't do. Like, we need your presence. If you remember back in chapter 3, the burning bush, remember Moses didn't want to do this whole thing from the beginning, right? And, and, and God's like, you're going. And he goes, and Moses says, who am I, right, that I should do this? You remember what God's response was? He says, I will be with you. Moses, it doesn't matter who you are. What you need to know is that I will be with you. And now it's sounding as though maybe God is not going to do that anymore. And Moses is saying, if that's the arrangement, you might as well just end this thing right now. Because I know how desperate we are for your presence. And what's also interesting is he says, what will distinguish me and your people from all the other people on the face of the earth? Okay? Remember, God gave them a role in the world 
at Sinai. He said, you guys are going to be for me a kingdom of priests. I'm going to bless you. You're set apart. But my goal is to bless all the nations through you. You're going to look different and distinct. And Moses is now saying, God, you know what makes us different and distinct? It's you. There's nothing else. I mean, you've seen how chronically unfaithful we are. There's nothing that makes us any different from anybody else. The only difference is we have you. And so if you're going to stay here at Sinai and send us with angels, you might as well just end this thing right now. And he's pressing in. And I just love the, the boldness and the, the sense of dependence he has on the presence of God. And I just think, I mean, I could spend a whole sermon on this, but how great would it be if, if we were men and women today who felt that same need for the presence of God, right? Like, God, my human resources, my wealth, my connections, all the things that I kind of can drum up on my own, none of that is going to bear spiritual fruit in the world. None of that is going to distinguish me uh, from other people. And if churches were that way, we, we have programs, right? We, have, we can hire good people. We, we can set vision. But None of that really amounts to anything if your spirit isn't in this, if you're present, if your presence isn't going with us. And this is, this is what we need. We need to wake up each day going, gosh, apart from your presence, Lord, <laughs> this isn't going to happen. Nothing fruitful is going to happen today. And so he's leaning in, and he gets this beautiful response from the Lord. Look at verse 14. The Lord repri- replied, my presence will go with you and I will give you rest. I'm going, Moses. I'm not going to follow through on this kind of thread I made. I'm going to go with you. Verse 17, the Lord said to Moses, I will do the very thing you've asked. My presence will go with you because I'm pleased with you and I know you by name. Okay, very comforting message to Moses. The tension of last chapters beginning to get resolved. Okay, God, you're, you're going. And I think Moses kind of wants this in writing. It's like, can I, can I have that in writing, God? Um, he's looking for some reassurances. And so then he asks this second thing, and I love this request in verse 18. Then Moses said, now, show me your glory. Show me your glory. And again, I think the context, that's not just some like non sequitur. The context is, I, I need some reassurance. I, I, I want to be able to count on that this is the kind of God you are, that you're going to follow through on this promise because this whole thing's been pretty hairy for a bit. So, like, I need, I need to see more of your heart. I, I need to get inside the essence of who you are and, and really be, you know, convinced, Lord, that you're going to do this. And so God says in verse 19, I'm going to cause my goodness to pass in front of you. I'm going to proclaim my name. I'm going to have mercy on who I'll have mercy. I'll come back to that in a second. But God is basically saying, yes, I'm going to confirm this with you, Lord, or with you, Moses. You, you, will, you will get an experience of me that will convince you that I'm not going anywhere, that I'm going to stick with you and I'm going to stick with these people. And he makes this arrangement with Moses that I think is remarkable, right? Um, I'm going to pass in front of you, verse 20, but you can't see my face for no one may see me and live. Verse 21, he says, there's a place near me where you may stand on a rock. When my glory passes by, I'll put you in a cleft in the rock and cover you with my hand until I've passed by. Then I'll remove my hand and you will see my back, but my face must not be seen. Moses, you know, all you can see is my backside, essentially. That's, that's the closest to me that you can get. So he, here's the image that, that God is giving us, that God is gonna, this is a situation he's gonna put Moses in. 
And, and I feel like this, this captures the tension that you'll see throughout the scriptures of human beings being able to see the living God. And it's, it's sort of a, you can see and you can't see, right? Um, there's, there's part of me that you can see. You can behold my glory and my beauty, and yet for a mere mortal to just experience the completely unfiltered, glorious presence of the living God will just undo you. So there's only so much of my glory that you can handle, but I'm going to give you what you can handle, okay? And um, he says that, and then, i uh, give you this image, and then what he does is he does this, and he... Um, well, let me show you. Look at, look at verse 4 in chapter 34. So this is the situation that's going to happen. Verse 4, I love this. So Moses chiseled out two stone tablets, right? He broke the, the Ten Commandments. We're going to have to remake those, uh, like the first ones, and went up Mount Sinai early in the morning as the Lord had commanded him, and he carried the two stone tablets in his hands. I, I was, this week, I was just picturing what it would have been like to be Moses, to have just been told, you're going to see my glory. You're going to see as much of the living God as a human being possibly can. And he's already experienced so much, right? But he's going to see more. He's going to experience more. I just pictured him waking up that morning, going back up the mountain, the amount of, of expectation, the adrenaline, I would imagine, that was kind of coursing through his veins as he went up to behold the glory of the Lord. And this is the glory of the Lord. This is what happens. Let me keep reading. This is the central passage, that, the, the central piece of this that I want you to see this morning. Verse 5, okay? We're going to behold the glory right now. Then the Lord came down in the cloud and stood there with him and proclaimed his name, Yahweh. And he passed in front of Moses proclaiming, Yahweh, Yahweh, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands, and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generations. Okay, that is the glory of God. And what's interesting is, is the essence of the glory is not so much like a visual presentation to be seen, but it is a description of God's character. It is a description of his heart and the ways he works with people in the world. And this is God, Yahweh, saying to Moses, Moses, this is who I am at my core. This is my glory. This is my essence. I am compassionate. I am gracious. I am forgiving. And I have to think that may have been a bit surprising to Moses. So you think of what Moses has experienced from God so far, what Israel has experienced from God, right? They've experienced big, awesome, glorious, right? The ten plagues, like just chaos unleashed in creation, freeing the people, the, the Red Sea parted, him, him showing up at Sinai, right? There's thunder, there's, there's lightning, there's trumpet blast. He's been big and overwhelming. And when he displays the very essence of his glory, he describes himself in this, I would say, soft and beautiful and kind way. And Moses is learning. He already knew that at the center of the universe was a God who was glorious and awesome. Now he's learning that at the center of this glorious God is a heart that is soft and kind and compassionate and forgiving. And that is his glory. Amen? 
So let me, um, let me just speak to the last. I want to I actually walk through this description together. Just let us kind of behold the glory together. Let me start with the last one. I, I don't like starting with the last one, but I think uh, as modern readers, we hear the way that ended, not leaving the guilty unpunished and, you know, punishing the sins. And we're like, oh, that was kind of a bummer way to, to end that description, right? I mean, modern readers are kind of left with that part of the description. So let me just speak to that for a second. Okay, that, that only comes after the overwhelming beauty of the other five descriptions of who God is, okay? And the contrast in this is between uh, maintaining love to thousands versus judging the third and fourth generation. So it's a thousand versus three and four, all right? And when you think about this idea of God um, punishing the sins to the third and fourth generation, you have to remember, like in an ancient context, generations, people aren't having, they don't start having kids at 35, right? They're having kids at 15, right? So four generations is like 60 years. Four generations live in the same house together in ancient cultures, okay? So your great-grandpa did something, he's a bad guy. You actually experience that because you live with him, okay? I mean, this is, this is not like some hex or curse that's sort of, you know, magically placed on a, a line of people. These are very real things where the sins of the fathers and the grandfathers and the grandmothers come down on their, on their kids, okay? So that, I think that sets a little bit of a context for that. Um, but what I want to do is I just want to walk through this description. Very well-known description of God for most of us, radical to Moses in the moment. And um, I want you to soak this in. Especially, I want you to take in, you know, in light of what I said at the beginning, where do we, are we tempted just to kind of keep a safe distance from God, okay? I want you to hear God's own description of his very essence and core. So I'm just, we're just going to walk through each of these and just, just sit with them. This is the glory of God, right? He pronounces his name, Yahweh, Yahweh. We've talked about that. And then you get three descriptions uh, of quality, qualities of his. Here's the first one. The compassionate and gracious God. Uh, so compassion, in that word in the Bible, almost, has, almost always has to do with people who are uh, broken or hurting, or vulnerable, and compassion reveals to, uh, re- refers to a person who's, when, when they see vulnerable, broken people, their heart just goes out to them, okay? They don't remain aloof, they're not emotionally distant, but they, their heart just goes out to people in need. Gracious, that word means just continuing to offer favor that is not deserved. That's what grace is. It's someone who's, who is offering something to somebody and just keeps offering that in ways that that person, they don't deserve it. They, they can't repay it and they, they don't deserve it. But gracious is someone who just keeps offering favor to those who don't deserve. The compassionate and gracious God. Second description, slow to anger. Meaning, uh, he is not short-tempered. Uh, he's not quick to get annoyed. Uh, he's not always looking for a fight, okay? It takes a lot, a lot of offense for him to kind of go be stirred up and say, hey, <laughs> something needs to be done here. He, he will absorb a lot before he takes that posture with other people. He's very slow to anger. Last um, kind of description, character description, 
abounding in love and faithfulness. And this one might get at the very core. Love and faithfulness in the Hebrew, chesed, I've taught you that one, and emet. Love and faithfulness, they're paired all the time in Scripture. Chesed, love, is covenant love. It's sticky love. It's uh, love that, that just hangs on, that doesn't give up, that keeps on keeping on with somebody, okay? It's, it's, it just, just kind of hangs on through thick and thin, through the, through the successes, through the failures. It's always there. Uh, faithfulness is, refers to someone who's reliable, who's true, who's trustworthy, again, who you can count on. And you put these two words together, <laughs> and you have somebody uh, who is utterly committed, who is loyal to a fault, <laughs> who will stand by people no matter what. And it says Yahweh is abounding in these two qualities. Okay, he has these in spades. They just kind of pour out of him. It's not like just a little bit and they run out. They never run out. We're just saying your love, your, your love never runs out. <laughs> these never run out for you. Psalm 23 celebrates this. And that, that psalm ends, we're going to sing a song at the end that, that ends this way. He says, if Yahweh's my shepherd, then surely goodness and love will follow me all the days of my life. And that word follow is actually pursue. If God's my, my, my shepherd, then these things will pursue me. They'll track me down my whole life. Whatever else follows my life, troubles, hardships, love, goodness, faithfulness, they will pursue me because God is, is my shepherd. Right? There's a great poem uh, written a couple hundred years ago called The Hound of Heaven. Right? God is like a bloodhound. He'll track you. His love will track you down. You can't get away. He'll sniff you out and he'll find you. Right? It's abounding in love and faithfulness. And then we get three descriptions of the kinds of things that God does in the world. Maintaining love to thousands. And that's, I don't have much to add here. It's that word chesed again. Um, but he's got love for lots and lots of people. And he maintains it. We already talked about it. He doesn't, doesn't let it go. Oh, this next one is wonderful. Forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. Okay? Let me just talk through those three wonderful words. Wickedness, rebellion, and sin. The Hebrew words there, let me start with the last one. The Hebrew word for sin means to miss the mark, literally. Many of you know that. It refers to mistakes that are made. We aim for something and we miss it. God says, I forgive that kind of missing of the mark. I forgive that kind of mistake. Uh, rebellion, the word actually is um, transgression. And so the, the image is you're on a path, right? And you come to a fence and there's a big sign on the fence that says, no trespassing, right? And you're like, screw it. And you hop over the fence and you keep going, okay? That's that's, rebel that's transgression, that's trespassing. And, and morally, God has set up these, these moral boundaries that are for our good, and all the time in our lives, we come up against one of his boundaries and we say, no, I'm gonna do it anyways because I want to or because I can't stop doing it, right? It's more than missing the mark. It's willful rebellion. And Yahweh forgives that kind of sin. Uh, and then the last one is wickedness, or some translations would be iniquity. And this isn't referring to the acts we do. It's referring to the, the, the posture of our hearts, that we have hearts that are twisted, that are, that are fundamentally broken now and at odds with God. So sin is not just something we do. 
sin just kind of leaks out of us because we have hearts that are this way. <laughs> and we know this about ourselves. And Yahweh forgives that too. This is who he is. This is his glory. And then finally, I already talked about this. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished, okay? And we actually don't want a world where the guy at the top leaves the guilty unpunished. (laughs) We want a God of justice. and We want a world of justice, let me put it that way. And so this, too, is part of his glory. So here they are. Let me just put them up there. This is the glory of God. He's not just a a vision to behold, but he is a person to be experienced through who he is. Verse 8, after this happens, Moses heard this, and it says, Moses bowed down to the ground at once and worshiped. And so I want to take just a moment. I'm not quite done yet, um, but I want to take a minute just to, to give you a full minute to just sit in silence with this vision of God's glory, right? And then I'll come back up and keep talking. But Maybe there's, there's one of these that, that the Spirit just wants to press into your heart and mind today. So let's just, like Moses, let's just bow down and worship before this, this vision of the glory of God. So we're so familiar with this description, right? Because th- this, this vision of God is, is what will echo throughout the rest of the Old Testament and into the New. I was, I was just thinking about places like the Psalms. Throughout the Psalms, they celebrate this vision of who God is. Psalm 103, maybe most famously. Let me, let me just read it to you. The Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love. He will not always accuse, nor will he harbor his anger forever. And here's my favorite line. He doesn't treat us as our sins deserve or repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his love for us. As far as the east is from the west, so far as he removed our transgressions from us. Right? Book of Nehemiah. The people are sent into exile for their disobedience. They come back into the land. For the first time in like a century, they have the law read to them. And everyone starts weeping because they haven't heard it for so long. And they didn't realize how far they had fallen from the law. And Nehemiah stops them and says, don't weep today. The joy of the Lord is your strength. And then he reminds them of this character quality of God. God is gracious and compassionate. He's slow to anger. He loves you. He will forgive you. Um, I love the story of Jonah. Uh, Jonah is sent to Israel's enemy, the Ninevites, right? And he wants, God says, go and preach the gospel to them. And he's like, 
Heck no, and he goes the other direction. God, you know, takes a fish, sends them there anyways. Uh, Jonah ends up preaching the gospel, and the Ninevites all repent. Okay, it's massive repentance. And Jonah is so frustrated, and what he says is, I, this is why I didn't want to go, because I knew this would happen, because I know you're this kind of a God who loves to forgive, and is, you know, all this stuff, and he's bemoaning the, the character of God. I knew you would do this. I know this is the kind of God you are, and these are my enemies. I don't want you to forgive my enemies, right? You see this beautiful character of God in various ways all coming through the story, and then ultimately, of course, we see most beautifully, right, that we see the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ, and that Jesus physically embodies precisely the glory of God. And I, I, I say this a lot, but the more and more I read the Bible, man, I'll just say um, Yahweh and Jesus look a lot alike, if I could say that, like suspiciously similar to one another, <laughs> if you know what I mean. And we have these kind of stereotypes where God, Bible, Old Testament, angry, right, vengeful, and the New Testament, soft, and kind of like, gosh, read more deeply. I see the same person at the center of the story. I see the softness of Yahweh, and I see the grit of Jesus. And they look really, really similar. And that's good news. And they should look exactly the same, in fact, <laughs> if Jesus is, in fact, the image of God. But this is who our God is. All right, so let me, um, let me just close this off. Um, this is the resolution to the tension that started back in chapter 32. How is this relationship going to work? Let me just look at verse 19 one more time. Chapter 33, verse, verse 19. The end of that verse, God says this, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. Sometimes we hear that, and that sounds really arbitrary, like God's going like, yes, yes, no, yes, yes, no. In the context, God is saying, I have the freedom to be compassionate to anybody. I have the freedom to be merciful to anybody. And what I think he's saying to Moses is this, Moses, you have pressed in, you've interceded for the people, and I love that. I love that you've done that. That, that warms my heart. But just so you know, the reason that this is going to work is not because I'm acquiescing to your demands or because you're asking me to do something that's contrary to my nature and that I'm kind of doing through gritted teeth. This is going to work because what you're asking me to do is precisely who I am. This is the very heart of my heart. I am a God who's forgiving and compassionate and gracious. And so that's why this relationship is going to work. The people are going to remain who they are, <laughs> stiff-necked. And I'm going to remain who I am, full of compassion and grace and mercy. And that's why this thing is going to work. And so I just want to leave us with that Hebrews passage. Um, Let us then approach the throne of grace with confidence, right? Moses is this beautiful picture of leaning into that tension, pressing in, and finding a God with a, with a very soft heart at, at the end. Um, one of my favorite lines I've given you this many times over the years, one of my seminary professors gave me this. Uh, there is no refuge from the judge. There isn't, but there is always refuge in the judge. And to go back to where we started, when we feel our sin, we feel that kind of maybe it's just best to keep a safe distance from God, right? What we're tempted to do always is just pull away. 
I'm just going to create some distance. I'll get my stuff together. Maybe I'll come back to God in a couple weeks when I'm feeling a little bit more cleaned up, right? And I just want to say, that's the wrong move. It's precisely the moment when we're feeling the guilt, the shame, the brokenness of our hearts, the sin in us. That's the moment to run to God. And if you can run past that image of God, uh, or God as judge, you will find a God who has refuge for you. You'll be like the prodigal son who turns, and the minute he turns, he's got a dad who's just like running out to him with open arms. You stay, stay, stay turned the other way, you'll still experience him like a judge. If you keep your distance, you'll just project your own judgment of yourself onto him forever. Turn, run to him, cry to him. You will find a God who is a refuge. So that's what we get to do today in communion. Wherever we need to turn to God, just come to his throne with boldness. We'll do that. So let me pray for us, and then Christina's going to lead us as we come to the tables today. Well, Father, today we, we bow and worship with Moses, and we celebrate the very heart of the gospel, which is your heart, that when we can see through the bigness and the majesty and the glory and the justice, all that is very much who you are, that at the very core, you are also this God who is kind, compassionate, gracious, forgiving, loving, slow to anger. I just pray that your spirit would impress that on our hearts and minds today. Wherever we are caught in sin and guilt and shame, that we'd actually find refuge in you today. That we'd see the glory of your compassion today. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.